This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Immunization Updates. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. These days, the orthopox virus in the news is monkeypox. But at the turn of the 18th century, British physician Edward Jenner began experimenting with a different orthopox virus, cowpox. He used cowpox to inoculate patients in order to prevent the much more deadly virus, variola major, better known as smallpox, which is 30 to 50% lethal. Cowpox caused sores on cattle that could be transferred to humans after touching those sores. It generally caused only a mild illness, and Jenner had observed that milkmaids who had previously contracted cowpox seemed immune to smallpox. At that time, the only way to prevent smallpox was a technique called variolation. This involved deliberately exposing a patient to a small amount of weakened smallpox virus under a physician's supervision to elicit that immune response. Unfortunately, this was very imprecise, and if not done correctly, patients could develop full-blown infection. On May 14, 1796, Jenner intentionally inoculated eight-year-old James Phipps with cowpox. The boy suffered a mild illness for a few days, then made a full recovery. A few weeks later, Jenner inoculated Phipps again, this time with smallpox. The boy remained healthy, thereby demonstrating that cowpox could indeed provide protection against smallpox. He called this novel technique vaccination, earning himself the title father of vaccination. Jenner reported his discovery to the Royal Society, but they rejected it, forcing him to self-publish this case report along with 22 others. It took several years, but his innovation finally gained steam and vaccination quickly re replaced variolation as a much safer substitute. 
Today, smallpox has been eradicated in no small part due to Jenner's efforts. His discovery was only the beginning of vaccination development. Now there are over two dozen vaccine preventable illnesses. Here to update us on the most recent vaccination guidelines, as well as the science behind them, is one of my colleagues, Dr. Nathan Richards. Nate is an assistant professor of internal medicine at Ohio State University and practices MedPeds primary care. He has lectured extensively on vaccinations, and I am excited to have him here back on the program. Nate, welcome to MedNet. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Jingjing. Nate, um, you know, there are so many vaccines that are recommended, and most of them seem to be for, for diseases that we rarely see anymore. Why is that? Yeah, I think that's a great thing to think about. You know, we often take for granted uh, that there are so many diseases we don't see, but that's thanks to and because of vaccines. Um, you know, it's very easy for, for us to forget this. Um, you know, most of our patients haven't seen these diseases in real life affecting people that they care about. I mean, we even as medical professionals training when we did uh, have not seen cases of a lot of these diseases. So we oftentimes take that for granted. But I really think it's important to remind ourselves as a medical community, the trainees that we're uh, teaching, our patients and the public at large, that if we're not vigilant about vaccination, we are going to see resurgence of these diseases. You know, we see examples of that with measles in under-vaccinated pop uh, under populations, as well as, you know, we even saw a case of polio in New York uh, this summer in a patient who was un unvaccinated. And are vac vaccines in general safe? And how do we convince our patients of that? Yeah, so I think, you know, the short answer for the medical professionals is yes. You know, we all know that they go through rigorous safety testing. Um, but the biggest thing is I think we have to find ways to effectively convey this to our patients and to the public at large. Um, you know, we have to think about how we market ourselves and more effectively market ourselves and what we're recommending. And we have to continue to build trust with the public as a, pro as a profession. Um, you know, individually for my patients and families, I do remind them that I am myself a patient. I have three children. Uh, I'm vaccinated and my kids are vaccinated. And oftentimes kind of personalizing like this will resonate with families and make them feel more comfortable about proceeding with vaccines. That's a great tip. Thanks, Nate. As a reminder for our audience, you can listen to our webcasts during your morning commute or your morning jog by searching for MedNet 21 CME on your podcast app. If you have any questions about today's program, don't forget you can submit those to us by using that icon on the bottom right-hand corner of the webcast. Now I'll turn things over to Nate to hear about vaccination updates. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much again. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, this is a topic I'm really passionate about uh, as a primary care physician. So hopefully after today, uh, you'll be able to demonstrate a clear understanding of the pediatric and adult vaccination schedules and also be able to apply the 2022 ACIP or Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices updates to your clinical practice. I will note that we are not going to be discussing COVID vaccinations today. As I'm told by Jingjing, that will be a separate lecture. So the first thing that I, I want to convey is that it's, uh, you know, there are a lot of vaccines to remember and a lot of schedules and nuances that can be tough to commit to memory. Um, so while you may have a lot of this in your memory and be able to use it day to day, it's really important to reference the CDC's guidance frequently throughout your day in your clinics. Um, they have a really nice, easy to use website now that I just keep bookmarked on my computer. And really as you go through their website, they have you go through four pretty simple questions that can help you figure out which vaccinations a patient is eligible for. The first question is they want you to determine the needed vaccines based off the patient's age. The second is to assess for medical conditions and other indications for vaccines. The third is to review special situations. And the fourth is to review contraindications and precautions to vaccines. This is an example of a chart uh, that gives you uh, the recommended vaccines based off patient age. Um, I will note that on the left-hand side there, 
each of those vaccines is a hyperlink that will take you down to further guidance and information and some of the details and nuances you'll need to make a decision for each vaccine. This is another example of one of the charts you can use. This one is a condition-based chart where you can look at individual conditions and pretty easily look down and figure out exactly which vaccines a patient is going to be due for. So when you look at these charts, it's important to know what the colors mean, and they've given us these legends to use. For adults, the yellow uh, um, uh, color indicates that a vaccination is routine for all adults in that age group. Uh, the purple means that um, it's indicated for patients with an additional risk factor. The blue shading indicates that they recommend it with clinical shared decision-making. And then gray means there's no recommendation or that vaccine is not applicable for that group or condition. For children, there's a couple of extra shadings that we need to note. Uh, the green indicates that uh, the patient is in the range of a recommendation. However, it's gonna be using the catch-up schedule. And the yellow dotted shading is for uh, vaccinations that can be given in a certain age group. This is usually where we may do a certain vaccine at, at one age, but they can get it a little bit earlier if they would like. Let's talk about a couple pediatric specific vaccines to start. The first is rotavirus vaccine. This is routine for all infants starting at the age of two months. It's a two or three dose series depending on which formulation you're using in your clinic. It's really important to note that infants age out of eligibility for this vaccine relatively early, so it's important to do on time. You cannot start the series on or after age 15 weeks and zero days, and the maximum age for the final dose is age eight months and zero days. Now, you have to remember that if the patient has a history of intussusception or SCID, severe combined immunodeficiency, this vaccine is contraindicated, so don't forget that. You also wanna take precaution with altered altered immunocompetence and chronic GI disease. Let's talk next about DTAP, not Tdap, this is DTAP. This is the preferred formulation for tetanus vaccination in children under the age of seven years old. In early childhood, it's a five dose series. And with all tetanus vaccines for kids and adults, you do wanna think about wound management when you're seeing a wound. And we'll talk a little bit more about the details of that in a later slide. All right, let's move on to vaccines that are indicated for both kids and adults. So influenza, so we're headed into influenza season again here, so really important to be thinking about this. It's indicated for all patients age six months and older. You do wanna think about specific age groups for children six months through eight years who are getting a flu shot for the first time or who have only previously ever received one flu shot in prior seasons, they do need to get two doses and this is generally separated by about a month. You also wanna think about using recombinant flu, which is called flu block. For those who are age 50 to 64, there's some data that this formulation is more effective in this age group. And you also wanna consider using the high dose flu vaccine for those 65 and older, as this has been shown to be more effective in this age group. One myth that we have to continue to dispel is that egg allergy is not a contraindication to egg-based flu vaccine. So even if a patient has a true IgE-mediated allergic reaction to eggs, you can still safely give this vaccine in your clinic. You do want to think about some cultural considerations as well. Um, so while egg protein is not an issue with IgE-mediated reactions, uh, some patients culturally prefer not to have this product in their vaccine. So this might be a time I reach for a flu block, which, which is a recombinant vaccine. Also, some formulations do have porcine products, so keep that in mind for patients who have a preference regarding that. You do want to take some precaution for anyone who has had Guillain-Barre syndrome, or GBS, within six weeks of a prior influenza vaccine. And really, you probably only want to give it if the benefit outweighs the risk. So think about maybe a, a severely immunosuppressed patient. 
The intranasal flu vaccine is an option if a patient prefers it, but remember this one is a live attenuated vaccine, so you want to avoid it in immunocompromised patients, pregnancy, chronic cardiovascular and pulmonary disease, and that one can be given starting at age two. Okay, moving on to Tdap, so different than Dtap for the young kids, Tdap, big T, is going to be the preferred form of tetanus vaccination for those that are seven and up. We routinely give this to children when they become adolescents at age 11 or 12. That's sort of their first adult dose. And then for adults, we do boosters with either TD or Tdap every 10 years. If an adult patient has not received a primary series, it's a three-dose series. And then you do want to update this every single pregnancy. And this is regardless of the last time they got a tetanus vaccine. So even if they got one one or two years ago, you're going to still give it during the pregnancy. Contraindications specifically to, D, to Tdap include encephalopathy within seven days of previously receiving the Tdap vaccine. You also want to take precaution with Guillain-Barre syndrome within six weeks of any prior tetanus toxoid containing vaccine. Or if the patient has an active, progressive, or unstable neurologic disorder, that's probably not the time to be giving the Tdap vaccine. So circling back to wound management, when you see someone with a wound, you certainly want to consider their tetanus vaccine status as part of the management. And basically there's three questions you want to ask yourself. First is, did they receive the primary series? Second is, when was the last dose? And the third is, is the wound clean and minor or is it something more significant? Based off the answers to those three questions, you can pretty easily pull up a chart like this one here and figure out if the patient is due for a tetanus booster. Moving on to measles, mumps, and rubella. So this vaccine is a routine vaccine for children. It's a two-dose series starting at age 12 months. However, you do want to consider giving it earlier if a patient's traveling. If a child is traveling out of the country, they can get this vaccine as early as six months. But remember, that dose will not count towards the standard vaccine series. And so even if they got a dose at six months for travel, you're still going to do the standard two-dose series starting at age 12 months. This year with the ACIP updates, they did make a note uh, and a little bit of a stronger recommendation that we want to avoid using the combination vaccine of MMR varicella, which is marketed as ProQuad, for the first dose. There is a higher risk of uh, fever and also febrile seizures if you use it. So while you technically can give it, it's recommended not to do it. You do want to give MMR vaccination to adults with no prior evidence of immunity, and you can determine their immunity status based off of prior records, uh, lab work, looking at serologies, or if the patient was born before 1957, uh, these diseases were much more prevalent then, and so they're considered immune. This one is also a live vaccine. You do want to think about giving it to women after they deliver, so we check for rubella immunity status during every pregnancy. If you find that they're rubella non-immune, you want to vaccinate by again after delivery. And then for adults, this is a one or a two dose series depending on the indication and those details you can find on the CDC's website. Moving along to varicella. So similar to MMR, this is a two-dose series for children starting at age 12 months. Again, I'll make the point that we want to avoid using the combination vaccine, MMR varicella or ProQuad, for the first dose in children. You want to give to adults with no prior evidence of immunity. Again, this can be records, which may be vaccine records or a physician documentation of clinical disease in the past. This can be blood work looking at serologies, similar to MMR, or if the patient was born before 1980, they're considered to likely have had the disease. 
This one, like MMR, is a live vaccine. And do note that if you're taking care of a healthcare worker, the 1980 rule does not apply in this situation, so they need to either have documentation or lab work demonstrating immunity. All right, moving on to HPV, which is really one of my favorite vaccines because, as you all know, this is a cancer-preventing vaccine. So really important to uh, make sure we're doing this one. It is routine through age 26. Um, do note, though, that it is a two-dose series if the first dose is given prior to age 15. If you start it after that, so 15 and after, then it's going to be a three-dose series. One of the things that ASIP did clarify in their updates this year is that for children with immunocompromising conditions, even if you start this series prior to the age of 15, it is also going to be a three-dose series in those patients. For adults, you can give it routinely up to age 26, as I've mentioned. However, for 27 to 45, they recommend you decide with shared decision-making. Um, in these patients, generally what I do is I talk to them about the benefits and the risks of doing the vaccination, and I take into account their risk factors and preferences. You know, if a patient uh, is likely to have multiple uh, sexual partners in the future, probably it's a good idea to go ahead and do the vaccine. Um, if you do decide to do it, you do want to consider insurance coverage. It's not universal in this age group, and so oftentimes I'll have the patients contact their insurance provider before administering the vaccine to ensure it's covered and to make sure that they don't end up with an unexpected bill. Again, this is a cancer-preventing vaccine, so super exciting, and I really tell my patients this because I think that makes it uh, a lot more interesting to them when we talk about the fact that it can prevent cancer. One thing I always like to do also is to make sure to discuss this one with young adults. So for whatever reason, you know, parents, sometimes there's stigma around this vaccine because it's targeting a sexually transmitted infection, and so they oftentimes will decline it during the adolescent years. But again, it's, it's still routine and covered through age 26 by pretty much all insurers. So once a, once a patient becomes an adult and is making their own medical decisions, it's a really key time to make sure you're talking to them about it and to make sure we're vaccinating those patients who did not receive it during adolescence. Okay, moving on to hepatitis A. So as you can see, this vaccine is routine for kids, and then there's going to be some special indications for adults. Um, although for children, we recommend it anytime through, uh, through the age of 18. You can give it during those times. It's routine. We really try to target the young age. So age 12 to 23 months is really one when you want to try to get this vaccine in. For adults, you can give it to any adult who desires vaccination, and I would recommend it for those who have additional risk factors. That can be liver disease of any kind, HIV, men who have sex with men, IV drug users, homelessness, travel, etc. Um, one thing to note is that while it's not routinely recommended for all adults without risk factors, it may be reasonable to push it a little bit harder. So in Ohio, where uh, I practice, um, there has actually been a hepatitis A outbreak over the last several years. So even your healthy person without risk factors has had some increased risk just going out to local restaurants. I've actually had two of my own patients admitted to the hospital with hepatitis A. One was pretty uh, significantly ill. So I probably do, in my state, push it a little bit harder. Um, I still state that it's not routine for patients, but I do think it's a very reasonable thing to do. And then do note that one option for patients who want to minimize the number of shots they're getting or the needles they're getting, um, you can give this in a combo vaccine with hepatitis B. That's called Twinrix, and that can be done for ages 18 and up. All right, so moving on to our meningococcal vaccines. So these uh, meningococcal A, CWY, is routine for children starting at age 11. 
Um, you do also want to think about special situations for kids that are younger than younger than this. So if a kid is younger than 11, but they're traveling to uh, the meningitis belt, somewhere where meningitis is endemic, you definitely want to vaccinate earlier. Or let's say you have a child who has you know functional or anatomic asplenia, you definitely want to try to get this in before age 11 because they're going to have risk prior to that time. For adults, we generally only do it if there's special indications. So this can include asplenia, like in children, HIV complement deficiency, and that can be either from an underlying disease or, uh, or complement inhibitors that we use for certain diseases, um, or if the patient is traveling to an endemic country. This can be a one or two dose series depending on the indication for adults. And for patients who have ongoing risk factors, you do want to consider doing a booster about every five years. For the meningitis A shots, Ideally, you want to use the same formulation for the whole series, but it's important to note that these are interchangeable. So if you have someone who got Minactra a few years ago and you know, Minactra is actually going out of uh, production, so they need something else now, you can certainly give one of the other forms that we have. One final note is that Minactra can't be given with Prevnar. This is going to be less of an issue for you since Minactra, like I said, is not going to be manufactured anymore. So for meningitis B, this one uh, is... Uh, oftentimes given to adolescents, but it's not considered routine vaccination. It's recommended to be given with shared decision-making for healthy adolescents and young adults. Some clinics do opt to do this routinely for all patients, but again, that's a decision you can make locally uh, with your practice. And then again, it's really more shared decision-making with the patients. You do also want to give to uh, both children and adults with risk factors, and they're essentially the same as for meningitis A. The minimum age, minimum age for this vaccine is 10 years, and you also want to consider periodic boosters for those that have ongoing risk over time. The two forms that we have, Trumenba and Bixero, unlike the meningitis A shots, these are not interchangeable. So if you start with one formulation, you need to continue that, that formulation for subsequent vaccines. Trumemba uh, is a three-dose series for those receiving it for underlying medical conditions. Outside of that, it can be a two-dose series. So think about that when you're, when you're uh, treating patients with underlying conditions that, that, that give them extra risk for meningitis disease. And then you do want to use precaution with Bixero if the patient has a latex sensitivity. One thing to note is that meningitis B shots can be given with meningitis A shots on the same day, but they do recommend doing them at different anatomic sites if that is feasible. All right, so let's talk about Haemophilus influenza type B, or HIB as we commonly call it. So for HIV, this is a routine series for children starting at two months of age. Uh, the catch-up series for this one can be quite complicated. So this is, again, we talked a little bit about trying not to get behind or spacing out vaccines on different days. This one is much easier if you just stick with the routine series. Uh, one really nice option we have is that HIB comes in a couple different forms of combination vaccines. Uh, so one of them is called Vexelis, which is a hexavalent vaccine. But the one thing to note about this one is that that particular form is not recommended for use as the booster dose at age 12 to 15 months. For adults, HIB is only given for special indications. That can be for anatomic or functional asplenia. And we vaccinate after patients have had a stem cell transplant, although that's generally going to be done by the bone marrow transplant team. All right, so we got through a lot of the stuff that hasn't changed too much with the 2022 ACIP updates. And now I really want to make sure I draw your attention to the things that have changed in a little bit more of a dramatic way with the updates this year. So let's first start by talking about hepatitis B. 
So the biggest thing with the 2022 update is that it is now recommended routinely for all adults up to age 59. Previously, it was just recommended in special circumstances, but now they're saying routinely for all adults. For those 16 above, it's recommended with additional risk, recommended for patients who have additional risk factors or indications. These other indications would include things like chronic liver disease, HIV, sexual exposure risk, IV drug use, risk of blood exposure, so your healthcare workers, dialysis patients, diabetes, incarceration, and travel. It is routine for children starting at birth, and the one thing to remember is that while we do have these combination vaccines, a pentavalent vaccine, a hexavalent, when you're doing that first vaccine for an infant, usually after the first day of life, you are gonna be doing just the monovalent vaccine in that age group. Also, while we're talking about infants, don't forget that sometimes we need to do um, passive vaccination. So if the mother is hep B surface antigen positive, in addition to getting the hep B vaccine, the child also needs to get the hep B immunoglobulin. So keep that in mind if you're working in the Newell Baby Nursery. Um, so for the conventional vaccines for hepatitis B, there's several formulations that we've been using for years. A couple of examples would be things like Energix and Recombivax, and those are considered conventional vaccines. But I do want to take a minute to talk about one additional formulation that we now have called Heplisav. This is a novel vaccine approved just a few years ago that has a novel adjuvant to improve the immune response. It's a little bit different than the typical Hep B series with the conventional vaccines. Those vaccines are given uh, three, there are three doses that are given at zero, two, and six months typically. This one is a two-dose series given just one month apart. This one can only be used for ages 18 and up. And while there's decent data for relatively healthy patients, there's not quite as much data yet in dialysis patients and in patients with immunosuppressing conditions. Um, and also, efficacy for use in non-responders has not been super well established at this point. So I want to view a little bit of the data around Heplisav. This was a study that came out a few years ago looking at the effectiveness of Heplisav B, the novel one, versus one of the conventional ones, Energix. I want to draw your attention to the figure on the right to start. And anything that skews to the right on that chart uh, is essentially favoring Heplisav. So what we're looking at here is seroprotection rates, both for all comers at the top and then for a variety of ages and different disease states as you go down. And you can pretty clearly see that the seroprotection uh, percentage favors use of Heplisav B. If you look over to the right, uh, there's a couple things to point out. One is that for young people who are healthy, there's not much difference in the achieved seroprotection rate when you compare these two types of vaccines. 18 to 29 years old, for example, you get 100% seroprotection with Heplisav B versus 93% with the conventional vaccines. However, as patients age, there's a pretty marked difference in the seroprotection rate that's achieved. So for the 60 to 70 year old group, you see 91% in the Heplisav B group and you see 72% in the Energix group. So something to think about as you're deciding for patients as they age. I also want to draw your attention to uh, some of these disease states. So diabetes, for example, if you go down just a little bit further on the left, for patients who got Heplisav B who have underlying diabetes, they had a 94% seroprotection rate with, with Heplisav B, but they only achieved a 78% seroprotection rate with um, the conventional vaccine. This is another study, and I've uh, pulled some of the data from that study and uh, put it in graphic form here for you. 
This is looking at the sear protection rate over time. Again, comparing Heplosav B to uh, Energix B, one of the conventional vaccines. And essentially what they did is they gave uh, the first dose of each of these vaccines at time zero. They gave the second dose of each one at time four weeks. And then the third dose of the Energix B was given at 24 weeks. And they were looking at the sear protection rate over time. And what you can pretty clearly see is that with Heplosav B, which is depicted in the red line, uh, you, you achieved a much higher sear protection rate, but also it occurred at a much faster rate. So when you're thinking about, you know, how quickly does a patient need to achieve a, an immunity status, this is one thing to consider. So which vaccine should we give? So really either are acceptable. ASIP has not taken a stance on recommending one form over, over another. Uh, I will say that conventional really is fine for most healthy patients. So again, looking back at the data for those young patients, those patients without underlying diseases, they achieve really pretty adequate immunity levels uh, using the conventional vaccines. Uh, we've been using them for a long time. We know they're safe. We have a lot of experience with them, and generally they're covered by all insurance providers. Um, Heplosav, I have run into a couple of circumstances where an insurance provider is, uh, declines to cover it and they want us to use the conventional vaccines. So that's one thing you need to consider. Also, you need to find out if the patient desires combination vaccines because Heplosav currently does not come as a combo vaccine. There's a question about non-responders. So the data in this group, like I mentioned, is not excellent at this point in time. Um, however, it's possible that over time we see that, the Hepl that Heplosav B is going to be more effective. And so I would be on the lookout for data as it comes out in time. Also, again, think about how quickly protection is needed. If I had someone who needed Hep B vaccination, say they were traveling in two months and I never had the vaccine, I probably would choose Heplosav in that scenario. And then also think about likelihood of follow-up. With Heplosav, you're just doing two vaccines over one month. With the conventional vaccines, you're doing three vaccines over the course of six months. You also can consider Heplosav B for groups of patients that are less likely to respond. But again, the safety and efficacy data in these groups is not as robust. So if you're going to use it, you probably want to apply shared decision-making uh, to that situation. Okay, moving on to zoster vaccination. So this is indicated routinely for all adults age 50 and up. And the big update from 2022 was that it's now indicated for all adults 19 and older with immunocompromising conditions or planned immunosuppression. Prior to this year, there were outstanding questions regarding use of this vaccine in these patient populations. First, there was questions about would it even be effective if a patient has an immunosuppressing condition or is on a medication that suppresses the immune system, you know, would they even achieve an immune response? And the second is that there were concerns about whether or not it would cause harm to the patient. Say if they had a solid organ transplant, would it potentially trigger an episode of rejection or trigger a flare of an autoimmune condition? As more data has come out, it's been shown that the, really the answer to both those questions is that yes, it is safe and also that it is effective in these age groups. And we know that these groups oftentimes are more at risk for getting shingles, so it's important to make sure we're doing this. This vaccine also does have an association with Guillain-Barre syndrome. And then, as you know, these patients oftentimes get systemic reactions. So I always try to remember to counsel patients on systemic reactogenicity with this vaccine. Uh, the worst thing is that, you know, you can forget to tell them about this and then they're calling you the next day or two days from now, you know, saying you made them sick with this vaccine and they're never getting it again. I really try to counsel them on the fact that they are probably likely to develop some flu-like symptoms, but I would say that this is just a really good sign that your immune system is functioning well and doing what it's supposed to do. And most patients are pretty uh, accepting of that explanation. 
So I want to spend a few minutes talking about specific immunosuppressing conditions, because while this vaccine is recommended routinely for patients who have immunosuppressing conditions or medications, we really want to think about what is the most optimal timing for giving the vaccine. Let's talk about stem cell transplantation. So for autologous stem cell transplants, you usually want to administer this vaccine three to 12 months after transplant. For allergenic, you want to administer it six to 12 months after transplant. And um, you want to try to vaccinate prior to discontinuation of any prophylactic antivirals if you can. For solid organ transplants, try to administer prior to a transplant when possible if you know the patient is headed for a transplant. And if not, then administer at least six to 12 months after transplant at a time when they have stable graft function and they're really more on that maintenance immunosuppression. For patients with cancer, when possible, you do want to try to administer before chemo, radiation, immunosuppressive medication, or splenectomy. If this is not possible, then you want to do it when the immune system is not acutely suppressed or when the immune system is likely to be most robust for, these patients, for those patients who are on continuous chemotherapy. Specifically for anti-B cell therapy, such as rituximab, uh, you do want to give it about four weeks prior to the next dose. For patients with HIV, um, so antiviral therapy and controlled HIV may lead to an improved response to vaccination. Obviously, if their immune system is in a better state, they may respond better. However, we do know that delaying vaccination can really put them at risk for getting the disease. And so it's not absolutely required that you get them into a better state in terms of their HIV control to do this vaccine. Um, so that's kind of a decision you make with the patient, uh, you know, kind of depending on their specific situation. For autoimmune and inflammatory conditions, ideally you want to give it when the underlying disease is controlled and not in an acute flare. And when possible, again, give before starting immunosuppressing medications. If that's not possible, then just like for malignancy, you want to give when immunosuppressing medication is anticipated to be low. And for patients on anti-B cell therapy, just like for cancer, give, it, give the vaccine four weeks prior to the next dose. Okay, moving on to pneumococcus. So uh, pneumococcal vaccination, you know, historically has been pretty confusing. It's always been confusing for me. It's taken me a long time to learn uh, the schedule for these vaccines. And it seems like they change the recommendations, you know, every couple of years. And again, this year they did make some pretty large uh, changes to the schedule. So let's go through it. So for uh, the 2022 updates for adults, they've incorporated two new formulations of this vaccine. So we now have PCV15, so um, the conjugate vaccine, it's called Vaxnavance, and another conjugate vaccine called PCV20 or Prevnar20. These were approved last year, and they've been put into use, and they've been put into the guidelines. For adults, PCV13 really is not being used anymore. So we still use it for children as part of the routine series during childhood, and we still use it for BMT patients. But again, that's usually going to be directed by the uh, stem cell transplant team. PPV, PPSV23, which uh, is the polysaccharide vaccine, is still available and can still be used in certain situations. So they hopefully, hopefully simplified this for us a little bit, and they've essentially outlined two ways that you can vaccinate adults against pneumococcus when there's an indication. The first is that you can do PCV15 followed by PPSV23, and that will complete the series. Or very simply, you can just do PCV20 alone, and that will complete the series and satisfy the vaccination. So the indications for pneumococcal vaccination in adults have essentially remained the same. We do it for all adults 65 and up. There's a variety of immunocompromising conditions that I've, listed, that I've listed there for you. Things like cochlear implant, CSF leak, 
alcoholism, chronic heart, lung, liver disease, cigarette smoking, and diabetes. So there's, there's many, many reasons why you may reach for this vaccine for adults. Looking at some of the pros and cons of these different vaccination strategies. So starting on the left with PCV15 followed by PPSV23. The pros are is that you actually get four additional strains that are covered with this strategy. The downsides though is that it requires two shots, which patients may not like. It's a little bit more complicated because they do get two shots, they need to come back. The timing can be as minimal as eight weeks, but sometimes we do 12 months between doses. And patients, you know, again, they have to follow up. So if you have a patient who has unreliable follow-up and they don't come back, they'll actually end up getting five less strains covered compared to had you, had you have just done PCV20. So some things to think about. For PCV20, it's sort of the opposite. So for the pros, it's a super simple thing to do. It's a single shot and it completes a series. It's probably a little bit more cost effective as well. The downside is that you do get four less strains that are covered, and this does account for maybe eight or so percent of the pneumococcal disease that's out there in the community. Additionally, one strain that was studied when they looked at PCV20 did not meet non-inferiority cutoff, but it was still immunogenic. So what do you do for patients who have previously received Prevnar 13? So what they're recommending at this time is that we follow the old or usual schedule for Pneumovax 23 following a Prevnar 13 if it wasn't previously given or if the patient is due for an additional dose. What they're saying at this time is that data is lacking to support the role of Prevnar 20 as a second dose when someone has gotten PCV 13. However, there is a little asterisk on their guidance that says if the patient doesn't have access to Pneumovax 23, then you can consider doing Prevnar 20. So keep that in mind if you don't have Pneumovax in your clinic and if the patient can't readily get it somewhere else. So for children, uh, vaccinating against pneumococcus is routine starting in childhood at, age of two, at the age of two months. And like I've said, this is where we still are using PCV13. I will note that this summer they did approve PCV15 for use in kids. It hasn't taken the place of PCV13, but you now can use either PCV15 or PCV13 for children. PPSV23 does sometimes need to be used in kids, and generally there's going to be a special indication for use in children. So usually you're not giving that for any routine reason, but again, all those things that I talked about in adults that were listed, many of them are similar in children, and so if a patient has any of these disease states, you wanna make sure you're thinking about adding in a PPSV23 as well. If you are gonna be doing a PPSV23 because the patient has indication, just make sure you space it out from the PCV13 by at least eight weeks. So there are some areas of uncertainty, and hopefully over the coming years, we'll have more data to guide our decision-making. But you know, one question is, which regimen is better for immunocompromised patients? Like I said, if you do the PCV15 followed by the PPSV23, you are getting some additional strains. But one thing to remember is that the polysaccharide vaccine is generally not considered as immunogenic. So those conjugate vaccines are a little more immunogenic. So which strategy do we use in immunosuppressed patients? Really not totally clear at this point, but hopefully we'll see more guidance in the coming years. For pediatrics, like I said, PCV15 PCV has been approved. PCV20 is actually being studied right now and being looked at, and so you may see that getting folded into the guidelines at some point in the next year or two. And then the last question is, what do we do with repeat dosing or boosters if you utilize one of the new strategies? That question is uh, still unanswered. All right, so moving on to some final and special considerations. 
So the first is catch-up vaccines. So I find these to be one of the most confusing parts of the vaccine schedule. There's a lot of nuance uh, and uh, really specific details that you need to follow when doing catch-up vaccines. So I do not try to commit this to memory. The only thing I've memorized is that it's complicated. And so if I have a patient who uh, is off schedule and we need to do catch-up vaccines, I just keep a reference to this at my desk and I just go through it and get it figured out. Um, one of the nice things we also have at a larger institution like Ohio State is that we do have uh, uh, support from the EMR, which does help us to determine which, patient, which vaccines a patient needs uh, off the catch-up schedule. But if you don't have that, you can pretty easily go through this. Here's an example of what the catch-up schedule looks like for Haemophilus influenza uh, type B. Um, and you can just see going from left to right there how complicated it gets when you're doing the second and the third doses and all the factors you have to consider. So just reference this, reference this when you need it. Insurance coverage is another thing that commonly comes up. And, you know, insurance is always so difficult for us as doctors to know, you know, is this covered? How much is it going to cost? Uh, a lot of that really varies on the patient's specific plan. For, for, for private plans, it's gotten a little bit easier. So uh, when the Affordable Care Act was passed, they did essentially require uh, uh, these plans to cover vaccines. And so unless a patient has some sort of old grad grandfather plan that hasn't been updated, you know, generally vaccines are going to be covered on private insurance plans. For Medicaid, the vaccines are covered. Um, there, in some states, there could be copays, so that you need to know based off of the specific state you practice in. For Medicare, it's a little bit goofy when you think about the coverage because it depends on what part uh, they have. For Part B Medicare, this covers a few vaccines, things like influenza and pneumococcus. So you can give those in the office and generally the patient is going to have coverage. However, some of these vaccines fall under Part D, the patient's uh, prescription drug plan coverage. So these vaccines, if you give them in the office, will often generate a, a copay for the patient or, or even they may have to pay the full price. So a lot of times what we would do in these scenarios is recommend that the patient get these vaccines at their local pharmacy. And that vaccines at pharmacies have become pretty widely available these days, which is great. There is also a program called Vaccines for Children, which is incredibly helpful for our patients who have low income and, th low income and things like that. Um, it's called VFC for short, and these vaccines come at no cost. This is funded by the government. There's also federally funded health centers uh, that may offer sliding scale payments. And then your local health department is also usually a really nice resource. They can sometimes do low cost vaccines. And if not, they can oftentimes direct patients to where uh, the easiest resource is gonna be in your local area where the patient can get, cost, uh, get vaccines at a, at a price that's gonna be affordable for them. Another thing to consider is travel. So again, oftentimes patients see us as their primary care doctors for pre-travel visits where they're thinking about which vaccines they need. This is a scenario, again, where I'm gonna be utilizing the CDC's website to figure out you know, exactly where they're going, what diseases they're gonna be at risk for. And this would include things like yellow fever, typhoid, rabies, polio, Japanese encephalitis, hep A, B, cholera, anth anthrax, and dengue. Also, it's always good to think about pregnancy. Um, in pregnancy, you do want to avoid live attenuated vaccines. And I mentioned before, you also want to do a Tdap every pregnancy. This is generally done by the OBGYN, but also you want to make sure that you're keeping an eye on that. Think about the mother's rubella uh, immunity status. And if, again, if they're rubella non-immune, make sure that you're circling back after they deliver so that that vaccine can be given. And then the varicella vaccine is similar. If they've never been vaccinated for varicella, you want to make sure you do that after delivery as well. Shingrix, although it's not a live vaccine, has not been well studied in pregnancy, so you do not want to do that one during pregnancy if they have an indication you want to wait until after delivery.
I also like to think about asplenic patients. When, when we look at data for vaccination in asplenic patients, it is uh, kind of shocking how many don't have the proper vaccine. So it's really up to us as primary care doctors to make sure that we're identifying these patients and not letting them fall through the cracks because they're very, very high risk for getting pretty significantly ill uh, and even potentially dying from uh, some of these diseases that are encapsulated organisms that they're at risk for. So this would include things like pneumococcus, Hib, and then both meningitis A and B. Ideally, if a patient's having a planned splenectomy, we like to vaccinate prior to surgery. Obviously, sometimes that doesn't happen if a patient has uh, you know, splenectomy after a trauma or something like that, but if you know it's coming, definitely plan for vaccination. And then always keep in mind which of your vaccines are the live attenuated vaccines because there are certain conditions where you cannot use these. This is your adenovirus, BCG, dengue, your intranasal flu, oral polio, MMR, varicella, oral typhoid, which currently, as, I, as far as I'm aware, is not in production, rotavirus, smallpox, yellow fever, and the live zoster, that one again, is no longer being used. So in summary, um, you know, vaccine schedules are confusing, they're ever-changing, and you definitely wanna make sure you know them pretty darn well, but again, lean on the CDC's website, lean on the resources in your electronic medical record if you have those built in, and reference them often. Um, and then again, make sure you review this year's updates in more detail. Um, there were quite a few significant updates, so make sure you're reviewing that, that you understand the nuances of them, and you're applying it to your practice. These are my references that I've used for, in preparation for this talk, and I just wanna say thank you for your time and attention. Thanks, Nate. Wow, there have been quite a number of changes this year and additions to the schedule. So, you know, that's not even counting the COVID vaccines that we're now giving. With so many vaccinations that patients now need, I get a lot of questions from patients asking, is it okay to get multiple vaccines at once? Or should they split it up so they're not getting them all at one time and allowing themselves to recover or build immunity? What do you think? It's a great question because it does come up all the time with our patients. Um, and really, it's honestly best to give them on the same day. And it is very safe. And I try to, you know, counsel my patients on this. I, essentially let them know that every single day your immune system is processing multiple foreign antigens. And your immune system really is built to do this. And I kind of just tell them, you know, isn't it amazing that you have this immune system that can do this for you? Um, so really I try to get them comfortable with it. And I really do try to push for them to get the vaccines done when they're there in front of you, when you have them. Because again, there's always that risk that they're not gonna follow up, that for the kids they're gonna get off schedule and then you're gonna be dealing with the complexities of the catch-up uh, schedule. Um, so really try to do it. If a patient is adamant that they won't do it, obviously I'd rather have them do some vaccines than none, and so I'll work with them. But again, it's really not preferred. Mm -hmm. And is that also true for children, or are there any nuances for kids? Yeah, yeah. generally they can do all the vaccines when, when they need them. Um, you know, there are a couple of vaccines that can interact, like I mentioned before, uh, you know, regarding Prevnar, Menactra. But for the most part, they can get all the vaccines safely on the same day. You know, sometimes when we're doing catch-up, we'll do seven or eight vaccines in a day, and that is safe. Mm -hmm. And is there any advantage to doing them all at the same time rather than splitting them up? I mean, I think some of the advantages are that, you know, you're not going to have a risk for them being lost to follow up. Um, and then it's kind of quicker for the kids. You know, it's thanks for the kids that have to come back and do multiple visits. That's just, you know provokes fear. It's really hard. So it's honestly, it's like more of a rip the bandaid off kind of strategy and just get it done while they're there. Okay. 
Great, thank you. And now that hepatitis B vaccination is more universally recommended, as you said, should we for uh, should we be vaccinating patients who are not sure or don't know if they ever had it as a child, or do we need to check their antibodies first before proceeding with the vaccine, especially knowing that it's two or three doses? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, you can check serologies if you would like. It's not necessary, so it's not like a universal recommendation to be doing that. I kind of take it on a case-by-case -case basis. You know, if a patient says, you know, I'm 95% sure I was vaccinated. I really don't want to do the series again, but I also want to be certain I'm vaccinated. Reasonable to check the serologies. On the flip side, if someone says, I'm pretty much certain I never had it done, you know, it's probably not worth spending the money on serologies. You probably should just proceed with the vaccination. And you're not going to harm them. So if they've had the Hep B series before and you do it again, it will not cause harm. Okay. And then speaking of hepatitis B, you mentioned that sometimes the decision of which product you choose, the two-dose or the three-dose conventional, depends on insurance. Is that also true for pneumococcus vaccine, or is that one more universally covered where you could switch between the PCV20 or 15 or even the PPSV? Yeah, as far, as far as I'm aware, that one is more universally covered, so you can sort of pick which strategy you and the patient prefer. Mm -hmm. And then now let's jump to the cancer-preventing vaccine, HPV. Um, now, I think we all know it prevents cervical cancer, but what about head and neck cancer? Does it help to pre prevent that too? Yeah, that is a, a really important point to make, and I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, you know, so it, we're seeing a lot of HPV-associated head and neck cancers, especially here, you know, where we practice at Ohio State, we have a very large cancer institute and, you know, have seen kind of firsthand, like how much morbidity and mortality is associated with these head and neck cancers. And so right now, the data is not as clear for the head and neck cancers. We do know that the vaccine reduces oropharyngeal HPV infection it's not as clear yet if it's going to reduce the risk of cancer. But it's not a crazy leap to think that probably we're gonna see that as we have more data going forward. And so I think it's still worth mentioning to patients that there's a good chance that this is likely gonna help prevent those types of um, uh, cancers, especially because you, know, you might have men who say, well, this vaccine is not important for me because cervical cancer affects women. It affects them as well. So oropharyngeally, uh, anal disease, it's important to kind of make these additional points about the, um, the things that this vaccine can help with. Mm -hmm. That's perfect. That's really exciting to know that it does prevent infection so that, you know, hopefully it also prevents cancer in other areas. And now talking a little bit about outbreaks, you know, we're seeing these pockets of outbreaks coming up, like, like you mentioned, polio, measles. Are there now recommendations for adult boosters of these childhood vaccines? So for some of them, there are. So for polio, for example, um, it's not a universal recommendation for all adults, but if a patient has never been vaccinated, certainly you wanna go ahead and do the series. But even if a patient is fully vaccinated for polio, if they're going somewhere, traveling somewhere, or they have some sort of local, you know, they're working with polio virus in a lab, they have some sort of risk, you definitely wanna think about doing a booster shot. It's not common around the world, but there still are a couple of countries where polio is endemic. So think about places like Pakistan or Afghanistan, which not many Americans are traveling to, but it does sometimes come up. And so you need to be thinking about vaccinating for these diseases uh, when patients are traveling to these areas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of these vaccines, they're not just one dose, they're multiple doses. And you mentioned, you know, sometimes compliance is an issue to get them to come back for their second, third doses, et cetera. What do you do if someone comes late to their second or third dose? Do you need to restart the series? So th yeah, great question. Thankfully, no. So once you've kind of had the dose, you know, there there's usually a minimum interval between the subsequent doses. But if they go over that, they don't generally need to come back to restart it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, especially I feel like 
you know, with COVID vaccines, we've seen a lot more vaccine hesitancy, especially in my practice. Um, I don't know if you've experienced that, but a lot of times people are worried about long-term effects of uh, vaccinations. Are there long-term effects that we should know about? Yeah, we don't really see that, you know, so normally we see those immediate reactions. So that could be an anaphylactic reaction, which certainly can happen to the vaccine itself or some other, you know, uh, ingredient in the vaccine. Um, and then we see those reactions that occur over the coming days, you know, those localized reactions, soreness, redness of the arm, swelling. Um, we see those systemic reactions like we talked about with fevers and flu-like symptoms. And then you do see those immune reactions like Guillain-Barre sometimes, but those are generally occurring within about six weeks or so. So it's highly unlikely that you'd see something pop up five years down the road, 10 years down the road. And I think those are some of the concerns people have had about the COVID vaccines is, well, hey, we need to study this for 10 years before we get it because we don't know what's going to happen. But it, there's some validity to that point. But again, we don't see that with any other vaccines. So it's highly unlikely we would see some sort of strange side effect pop up that far down the road. Mm -hmm. And, you know, another question I'm getting a lot from patients these days ever since COVID came out is, should I pre-treat before my vaccines with antipyretics? You know, there a lot of people say, oh, we shouldn't do that because that could reduce the immunogenicity of the vaccines. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, you know, there's some data looking at sort of antibody titers after giving vaccines to children and whether or not they got a pre-treatment, so to speak, with mm -hmm. tylen acetaminophen or something like that. Um, and so there is some data that the antibody titers don't go up as high. So generally, I'll tell people there's no need to pre-treat. Now, if you get a vaccine and, you know, it's one o'clock in the morning and your child's screaming to death because they got a fever and you can't console them, is it the end of the world to give a dose of Tylenol at that point? Probably not, uh, mm -hmm. but generally we don't pre-treat. Okay, and we're headed into flu season now. Uh, a lot of patients are asking me, should they get their flu shot now or should they wait a little bit longer so that it doesn't stop working at the end of the flu season? What do you say to that? Yeah, that's another really, really great point. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, so there's some data that sort of delaying the vaccine till a little bit later into the season can provide you better protection during the peak of the flu season. Um, so if a patient specifically asks me about that and they wish to do that, especially if I know that they're a compliant patient, they're going to come back or they're going to get at their pharmacy, very, I, I tell them it's very reasonable to do and to go ahead and do it. However, from a public health standpoint, if we recommended that for everybody kind of broadly, it would be difficult just functionally to get everyone vaccinated in the proper time frame. So I'm a little hesitant to say that to everybody all the time just from, from the public health impacts. Um, and then again, if I have a patient who I feel like they're unlikely to come back and this is my opportunity to vaccinate them, I probably would not delay the vaccine and just go ahead and get it done. Got it. And then are there some special populations other than 65 and up that we need to think about high dose? I've seen some people give high dose for transplant patients. Is that your practice? I'm actually not aware of the data on that, um, so I'm not 100% sure. Is that something you've been doing in your practice at all? Um, I've seen it done, and so I, I, I think I looked into it a while ago, and I did see there was one study showing that it was beneficial in the solid tr uh, organ transplant group. And so uh, I've been wondering, because I know a lot of times patients get their vaccines at pharmacies or, yeah. or other places besides just my office. And so, um, you know, even if I do it, or if I do that for my patients when they're in my office, a lot of times they're getting it elsewhere. And I'm wondering if it's something that should be shared more broadly. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thanks so much for coming on the program yeah. and giving us all these wonderful updates. I'm definitely feeling very prepared to go back and uh, talk to my patients about vaccines and get them all up to date. So what 
would be one final key point that you would want to leave our viewers with today? Yeah, you know, I think, um, again, it's really important to, you know, understand the vaccine schedule, to be able to use it efficiently and properly in your clinic. But potentially even more important than that is just making sure that we are able to convince our patients to do it. And we need to have that relationship, you know, a good relationship with our patients in order to do that. And, and as a profession, you know, we need to have a, a good reputation with, uh, with the population in general. You know, we're fighting a pretty big anti-vaccine movement these days, especially with their presence on social media. Uh, so it can be really challenging. Um, for us as individual providers, you know, one of the best things we can do to overcome some of the misinformation and some of the anti-vaccine um, really propaganda is really to have a relationship with our patients. When they trust us, uh, when we listen to their concerns, when we don't you know, blow off their concerns and actually take the time to uh, hear them, understand them and, and respond to them in a caring manner. I think that's one of the biggest things that we can do to make sure that our patients receive these vaccines and are protected. Thanks for joining us today. Please check out our website at ccme.osu.edu. There you can log in and get your CME credit, your ABIM MOC points, or you can watch any of our other existing programs and get our show notes. Next week, Dr. Yu Yang Fei will be here to discuss abnormal uterine bleeding and menstrual suppression. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.